I bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters at Harvest. It's good to be here with you again. Love the new building, um, and uh, this works out really well. <laughs> but it's great to be with you and looking forward to opening God's Word with you. I'm going to be ask you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, you'll notice that's not the text that is listed in the bulletin, and uh, that's because we're going to be on the same topic, but a different text, a text that uh, really sets the foundations for the peace of a Christian. Romans chapter 5, I'm going to be uh, reading verses 1 through 5. This is God's Word. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured, out, poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Brothers and sisters, as you know, this past Monday was a tragic day for our brothers and sisters in Nashville as they were stunned by a mass shooting at Covenant Presbyterian Christian School. Uh, George Grant, who is a PCA pastor and an author, uh, he's a pastor of a nearby PCA church there in Franklin, Tennessee, wrote wrote an article this week and uh, recalls that they were in a Presbyterian meeting um, on that Monday. Uh, Pastor Scruggs, the pastor of Covenant Presbyterian church was there as well and and uh, he says we were in our meeting and suddenly our deliberations were interrupted by uh, a flurry of calls and texts uh, saying that there was an active shooter at covenant school facility he writes we emptied into the hallway stricken eyes clouded with unbelief horror and grief the covenant men hurried on their way back to the church our worst fears were realized a disturbed young woman armed with assault weapons and seething hate shot her way into the well-secured building and proceeded to take the lives of three nine-year-old students and three adults. As you know, one of the victims was Hallie, the nine-year-old daughter of Pastor Scruggs. Uh, Grant encapsulates the a tragedy with a quote from a French writer, Hilaire Below, who wrote this, Time after time, mankind is driven against the rocks of the horrid reality of a fallen creation. Time after time, mankind is driven against the rocks of the horrid reality of a fallen creation. And brothers and sisters, we uh, run into those rocks in our own lives, the reality of a fallen creation. Uh, We we experience that in in a variety of ways, in the death of a loved one, uh, in a disease that steals away our strength and ability, uh, in um, sin that clings so closely to us, in relationships that are, are broken around us, a suffering and sorrow are inescapable realities of this fallen world. But the gospel means to uh, let us know and to convince us that they are not the only realities. In fact, they're not even the ultimate realities. That uh, God has invaded the horror, the horrid reality of this fallen world in Jesus Christ, and that changes everything. Uh, God has invaded this world with good news, with a message of salvation and uh, of life and freedom. And, uh, and, and that makes all the difference as we walk this pilgrim road together. 
you know, if you remember in your uh, reading and study of the book of Romans, Paul begins in chapter 321, um, particularly to lay out the doctrine of justification by grace and by faith, and not only by faith, but by faith alone. And uh, Paul has been uh, having, uh, explaining that doctrine sort of in the context of a, a, a debate or discussion with his Jewish critics, and has been, in a sense, arguing with them in the letter. And um, has brilliantly shown by using Abraham, the father of the Jews, the Jews, showing that Abraham himself was not justified by keeping the law, but Abraham was justified uh, as an act of grace uh, through faith, where God counted his righteousness, of faith to him as righteousness. And so that uh, Abraham becomes the example par excellence of the glorious good news of justification by faith. And now having, in a sense, answered his Jewish critics, Paul turns uh, his direction uh, completely towards the church, his intended audience, the believers in Rome, and and to us today. And you'll notice in chapter 5 now, we have this recurring pronoun, we. Uh, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Uh, These words are meant, uh, intended directly for us, for the church. Uh, These words flow from God's heart through Paul's spirit-inspired pen and are meant for our lives today, the lives that we actually lead and live in this fallen world. And so after having explained the facts of the doctrine of justification, Paul now is going to um, expound on its fruit, and that's what we're looking at tonight, the fruit of justification by faith. The question that Paul's asking is that critical question, so what? So justification uh, by faith is true. So what? What is it, how does it really help in the day-to-day reality of life? Why does it matter? What's the benefit of it? Paul, you, you won your argument, and um, kudos to you, but so what? And Paul goes right to that issue and lists here four amazing benefits, fruits of the doctrine of justification by faith, and they are peace with God, and access into the grace of God, joyful hope in suffering, and the experience of the love of God. All of those blessings flow from the doctrine, the truth of justification by faith alone. Notice as Paul begins, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. And that verb tense matters. It tells us that justification is this one-time past event where God has declared once and for all time that those who come to Christ in faith are, um, by grace and through faith, are righteous in His sight. That's God's declaration. It's God's declaration over your life. You see, the the verdict of your life has been rendered. The judgment of your life uh, is is passed, in a sense. God has, has rendered the verdict, acquitted, righteous, that the, the, the law can no longer condemn you. Death has no hold on you. You have been gloriously set free and placed in a new relationship with God. And Paul goes directly to that. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the foundational benefit of justification. If I would uh, ask you tonight, why did Jesus die on the cross? I think uh, some of you would say, well, he died to forgive me my sin. Uh, And praise God, that's absolutely true. Uh, You might, if you're a little more theologically astute, you might use words like atonement or redemption. Maybe even if you're, you know, 
far along, uh, propitiation. That's a nice big word that, that Paul uses. Uh, Jesus was doing all those things, and it's absolutely true. He was doing all those things. But that's not the ultimate thing he was doing. All those things were means to a greater end. Uh, Jesus was on the cross making peace between man the rebel and God the holy judge. Paul uh, says this specifically in Colossians 1.21. You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, that is Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Jesus died to create peace between you, the rebel, and God, the holy, the holy God. The God who must punish what is wicked, what is evil. Uh, one, of the, um, one of the reasons that the gospel seems foolish to people, <clears throat> and one of the reasons that it often doesn't really resonate uh, or transform lives of people who say that they're Christians, uh, is, is this obstacle of, of people thinking that we're, um, we're fairly good people, right? We don't really have a sense that by nature we're at war with God or that we're in great trouble with God. People don't see themselves the way Paul describes them, alienated from God, hostile in their mind, doing evil deeds. It's not how they think of themselves. They think of themselves as basically good people doing the best they can and uh, God knows the good intents of their heart. I enjoy, um, from time to time, watching Ray Comfort videos. I'm sure uh, maybe you've seen those. If you haven't, they're, they're enjoyable to watch. Ray Comfort is a street evangelist, works mostly out in California, but he, um, he is really good at just having conversations with people and using the law, the third use, I mean the, the law as a, a way of exposing men's sin. So he'll, he'll just walk up to people and say, you know, mind if I ask you a few questions? And he'll start by saying, do you think you're a good person? And they'll always say yes. Um, do you think you're going to go to heaven? And um, sure, they think they're going to heaven. And then Ray applies the law. Uh, have you ever lied? Well, yeah. What do, you, what do you call a person who lies? A liar? That's right. Uh, have you ever stolen anything? Yeah, I've stolen. What do you call a, a person who steals? A thief? Yes, that's right. Uh, have you ever lusted after anyone in your heart? Yeah. Well, Jesus says that's, that's adultery. Have you ever been really, really angry at someone? Yes. Well, Jesus says that's murder. So you tell me you're a good person, yet by the testimony of your own mouth, you just committed, you, you just confessed that you're a lying, stealing, adulterous murderer. And then he goes to this question, which I find to be really, uh, this really gets people's attention. He'll say to them, have you ever taken the Lord's name in vain? Have you ever used God's name or Jesus' name as a curse word? And people will say, yeah. And, um, and he said, would, would you ever use your mother's name as a curse word? If you got really angry with someone, really frustrated, would you use your mother's name as a curse word? And people are sort of taken back by the question. And, and they always say, well, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dream of it. And he'll follow up and say, well, why, why not? And the reason, of course, you, you wouldn't do that is because you love and respect your mother, right? That's right. Well, why don't you love and respect God? You don't love and respect God. You're willing to use his name as a curse word. 
The Bible calls that blasphemy, and the Bible says that blasphemers will go to hell. Do you still think that you're going to go to heaven? And people at this point, I've, you know, uh, seem to say, well, I don't know, or probably not. Uh, they're beginning to see themselves in a different light, see themselves as the law uh, un, 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 reveals them, exposes them. You see, the, the fact is that man is at war with God. Uh, we are hostile to God, doing evil deeds. And it's exactly that dark fact that makes the, the light of the gospel such a wonderful thing. That God sent his son Jesus Christ uh, for rebels, right? For, for, for God's enemies. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, the Bible says. Jesus came to die in, in the sinner's place, bearing the sinner's sin, receiving the wrath that we deserve, so that now peace has broken out between you and God. And, and, and Paul says this with a great certainty. His, his words are, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Not we will one day, or not we hope to have, uh, we have it today. It's an objective reality accomplished by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and applied to all those who believe in Him. The gospel is this glorious message that the war between you and God is over and God won. And in his victory, he has captured you and brought you into, by grace through faith, into this new arena, this new category of peace. You've stepped into a new realm, the realm of God's peace, which means that, that God has nothing for you now except love and grace and favor and kindness and mercy and compassion. That's all that God the Father has for you. Even when He's disciplining you, He's disciplining you in love. He's disciplining you in grace. Because you're at peace with Him. That's what it means to be at peace with God. That God has... has his disposition towards you. I once I asked uh, my uh, young people, I uh, teach a Wednesday night high school theology class. And uh, I asked uh, the kids, use one word to describe how you think God feels about you. And, and the words I got back were uh, disappointed, frustrated, sad, angry. Those are the words I got back. Well, that's a frightening thing. <laughs> For, uh, as a pastor, where I'm trying to preach the gospel, and yet somehow these kids are hearing that God's disposition towards me is disappointment, frustration, sadness, anger, because it's not true. Right? If, if for those who are in Jesus Christ, God's disposition is love and grace and favor and kindness, even when He disciplines. And we can talk about, right, there's a certain um, anger or, or wrath that God, but it's never condemning, it's never judging, it's always healing, it's always helping, because, you see, we stand in grace. And that's what Paul talks about next. We have access to this arena of grace, though through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The issue of access goes way back to the Garden of Eden, way back to the fall. Uh, Adam and Eve there in the, in the uh, garden, you see, were enjoying all the blessings of the garden, the chief being access to God. The glory of Eden wasn't um, that there was just no sin or that Adam and Eve had perfect, a perfect relationship, a sinless relationship. The glory of Eden wasn't the harmony that they could enjoy with uh, the other animals and the created world. 
What a, what an amazing experience. But, but that wasn't the glory of Eden. The glory of Eden was they walked and talked with God. They had communion with God. That was the beauty and the glory of, of Eden, and that's what was lost in the fall, along with all the rest of it. Their sins separated them from God, and God placed two angels with flaming swords at the entrance after he removed them from the garden, and they are barred. They're not allowed back in. And that same um, message is communicated through the tabernacle and the temple. If you remember, God gives instructions for how this thing is to be built. And at the very center of the tabernacle and the, and the temple, you have the most holy place. And there's a great curtain that goes up between the holy place and the most holy place. And in a sense, over that curtain is written, do not enter. You're right. No trespassing. Stay out. No one gets to go in. No one has access to God except the high priest, and that only by once a year, and that only to make propitiation, to put, make propitiation with, with the shedding of blood on the altar. He's not there to chat with God. He's not there to hang out. He's not there to uh, get to know God in a, in, a, in a different way and kind of come back and share what he's learned. He is there to do one thing, to act as the servant of God for the people, as the priest, making sacrifice, and then he gets back out. And no one comes in. That's the message of the temple. You're not allowed. We don't, access is not permitted. It's not granted. And that's what makes the gospel so beautiful that when Jesus died on the cross, that great barrier is ripped in two from top to bottom. God himself rendering apart the barrier that stood between man and God. And Paul says now through Jesus we have access. We have access through Jesus. We have access, not just into the presence of God, but access into grace. I love how Paul says it. We have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. It just means, you see, that the God that, that we, are draw, we can now draw near to, the God that, that invites us to come, is the God of all grace. And when we come to God in Jesus Christ, what we find there is the experience of grace. Grace upon grace. Unmerited favor. Infinite love and and kindness and and mercy. Uh, And it's not just a place we can visit from time to time. Paul says it's where we stand. It's where we live. It's the air that you breathe as a Christian. Nothing happens to you that does not have grace stamped on it, that has not been approved, in a sense, by divine grace, that doesn't come to you um, as though you're outside the arena of divine grace. we, We have access into a grace in which we stand and if and because you see that access has been granted by faith not merit if it's merit you could be in one day and out the next day that's what drove martin luther crazy he never could quite figure out where he was he always he sensed he was always falling short that that if 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 grace is gained by merit that's a very hard way to live because if you're honest with yourself you don't the merit isn't there but if it's, if, it's, if it's by grace, if it's by gift, received by faith, well, then you see it's, it's full and free and you can know for certain. You don't have to have any doubt. Not if it's by faith. Not, not if we're justified by faith. You can know that I stand in grace today and, and as certainly as, as I know that Jesus is the Son of God who died for my sin, I know that one day I will see Him face to face. It must be so because blood-bought grace is everlasting grace. 
And that's why, you see, we have confident hope of glory. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We can stand in the middle of this fallen world with all the horrid realities that go with it, and we can know, we can know, just as certain, certainly as you are here today, you can know that one day you will be face to face with Jesus Christ in the glory of heaven, robed with the glory of God. The one necessarily follows the other because God has loved us and justified us by faith and we are now in Jesus Christ. We're going to be with Jesus Christ. If our access is by His promise and by Jesus' accomplishment, His atoning work, well then it can't be lost. Nothing can sever it. We stand in grace and we rejoice in the hope, the confidence, the conviction that this is temporary, this is fleeting, and one day, one day, we're going to see God and we're going to be in His presence forever. And because that's true, we can rejoice even in suffering. Paul says, verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. It's a very countercultural thought, very, well, it's not, it's not how we natively think, right? That suffering could be something um, to rejoice in. Suffering is what people seek to avoid. Uh, the culture that we live in today, the only value to suffering, if there's any value at all, uh, is that um, if you can blame someone else for it, then which, which allows you uh, access to the coveted category of victim. And that's the only value suffering has. If it, if it allows you into the category of victim, then... Uh, then you have some power and, um, and you can invite uh, pity and, 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 and uh, empathy. But, but apart from that, there's no value at all. Well, Christians think completely differently. We see things in an entirely different way. We, we are not victims. We're not victims. The, if you think about the tragedy in Nashville, it'd be so easy to think that the victims are those who lost their lives and, and the family members who are grieving today. But that's not biblical truth. They suffer. They suffer incredibly. But the, but the ones who died are, are with Jesus Christ. The, the tragedy is the people in the bondage and the blindness of, of sin and, and unbelief and hatred who are on their, their way to an eternity without Christ. God's people are not victims. We are clay in the potter's hands. We're always clay in the potter's hands. Maybe you've seen a potter working his lump of clay and he's got the spinning wheel and it's going and he's carefully applying pressure and forming that, the bowl just as he likes. And every once in a while, I'm sure you've seen this, something goes wrong. He hits a, either the wheel gets a little out of whack or the clay is not stable and the whole thing just flops and they've got to crumble it all up and throw it away and start over again. God never does that. God never, never has a failure. He applies perfect pressure at exactly the right time in precisely the right place, and He is molding your life into a display of His splendor. That's what the Bible says. Your life, just little old you, are being made into something that angels will never be. They'll never be a display of the splendor of God. But you will be. You will be a testimony. For all of eternity to the glory and the goodness and the grace and the power and the kindness of the living God. It's an amazing thing to think about. 
And so we approach suffering in a different way. You see, because we, we have been justified by faith as a gift, not by merit, we can know that, that now that peace is ours freely and fully by grace and gift. And that means that since we have peace with God, suffering is never punishment. And because we stand in grace, suffering is never judgment. It means that our times of suffering means that God is, is sovereignly, sovereignly, beautifully, with infinite wisdom and skill, at work for our eternal glory. And that's what Paul talks about then. So suffering produces endurance. Suffering produces endurance. Suffering builds the muscle of faith. Um, I uh, have a dream, and that is that I could be in great shape, the best shape of my life, by sitting on the couch. I've tried it. <clears throat> it doesn't work. You don't build any muscles on the couch, do you? You have to actually get up and do something. You've got you to do something that oftentimes brings pain. And it's exactly the same when it comes to the things of faith. You don't, you don't exercise the muscle of, of faith in, in the easy chair of, of the Christian life. When everything is going well, you exercise it. You learn that, that reality in the hospital bed. You learn that reality. You exercise that muscle when the doctor says cancer. You, you exercise that muscle when the marriage falls apart and you never ever intended it to and, and, it, and it, you can't imagine this is happening to you or a, a, a loved one uh, dies too soon you see you, you, you learn endurance or endurance gets produced in the trials Malcolm Muggeridge and I won't say this quote exactly but great English philosopher writer says as I look back at my life I have to confess that the only times I ever really learned anything were the times of suffering it's how God works. Suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces proven character. The Greek word there is a little difficult. It, it doesn't just mean character, but it, it means uh, uh, something that's been tested and proven to be true. So when, when a manufacturing company, they're, they're, when they're you know, uh, making some widget or some uh, piece for, a, for the car companies, whatever it might be, they um, pull a piece every once in a while and they'll run it through some tests. Uh, is it strong enough? Does it, is it the right measurements? Does it do what it's supposed to do? They're testing it to prove it. Well, Paul says endurance uh, produces this proven character. Your faith is, is, is being challenged and tested and tried. And it's making you ask, that trial is making you ask hard questions, but really important questions. Is God still good? When the doctor says cancer? Is... Is God's grace sufficient in my time of, of suffering? Is, is, is God faithful and good even when He's taken a loved one away from me? Am I willing to trust Him even though I have no idea whatsoever what He's trying to accomplish in, in this hard, hard event in my life? You see, your, your faith is being tested. It's being proven. Because when you answer yes to those questions, you see, you have the joy of realizing you really do believe this stuff. It's not just stuff your pastor was telling you from Sunday to Sunday or you learned from your parents. You believe this stuff. It's a critical thing to happen in, in the life of every true believer. Um, when, when you start to ask those questions, do I really believe this? And then trials come along and your faith is tested and you find, yes, I do. I really do believe it. I don't understand it all, but, but I believe what God says. I trust in Him. And that produces hope, Paul says. 
It produces hope because I actually am a Christian. I'm, a real, I'm, the real, I'm an, an actual real Christian. The Holy Spirit has truly given me a faith in Jesus Christ. God has done a work in my life. I would not have been able to endure this trial five years ago or ten years ago or, or, or when I was not a Christian. And yet, and yet by the grace of God and, and the Holy Spirit ministering that grace to me and through the word of God as, as God speaks to me, I have endured. I'm a Christian. And I'm always going to be a Christian. And one day I'm going to stand spotless, without fault, with no reproach, perfected, glorified in the presence of Jesus Christ. That's who I am. Paul says that hope does not put us to shame. No one who places their hope in Jesus Christ will be disappointed. Peter writes of it, quoting from Isaiah, he says, 1 Peter 2, 6, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. In God's economy, friends, we have nothing to lose, not ultimately. Not ultimately. It's all, it's all gain. All gain. These light and momentary troubles are gaining for us a glory that's greater than what we can express. You see, and, that, and that's what makes suffering and enduring and, and hope an experience of God's love. Which is where Paul concludes, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, when you walk into the valley of suffering, holding tightly to the God who justifies by faith and grace, you will find that valley to be an experience of love. When you, when you realize that God is not treating you as your sin deserved, this is not punishment. God is instead orchestrating the events of your life and in ways that only he knows and can understand, but he's, he's orchestrating the, those hard events to produce things in you of eternal value and eternal benefit, and you will feel deeply loved. I remember having a conversation with a Jonathan Falk, a retired OPC pastor. Jonathan was a missionary in Eritrea for a while, and he had been arrested with about 30 Eritrean believers and locked up for a, a little over a week. And I asked him, what was that experience like? And they had no idea if they were going to live or die. Uh, locked up in a dark room, some food and water from time to time slid into the room. You know what he said? He said, it was the sweetest experience of the love of God in my life. It was the sweetest experience of the love of God in my life. So Paul says, Right? I want to know Christ and the fellowship of sharing in His suffering. I want to, I want to know that sweet communion of, of, of knowing Christ in that moment when, when I am suffering in, in a sense with Him and experience His love to me in that moment. Remember when the disciples were first persecuted and they were, they were beaten, which would be incredibly painful, and yet they leave rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name. That persecution, that that pain, that trial for them was an experience of God's love for them. And they were rejoicing. Maybe you are in the crucible of suffering tonight. Maybe you're walking that valley. And in, in that place we're tempted to read our circumstances through the lens of how we feel, through the lens of what we think. Uh, we can see clearly, right, the, the loss. We can see maybe the injustice. But I plead with you tonight to instead learn to read your life 
with the lens of faith. Read your life with the lens of Romans 5. Have you been justified by faith? Has God declared you righteous for all time in His sight? Has God declared you to be His beloved, His accepted? Has He, has he brought you into this arena of peace and, 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 and made you stand in grace? Well, if, if that's true of you, see, then, then we can read our circumstances differently and we can, we can lay hold of the goodness of God with the arms of faith, even in the suffering, and, 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 and rejoice in the suffering as we know God is, is at work to, to mold us and shape us for our eternal joy. We, we, we can rejoice in our suffering in the hope of the glory of God, that this pain is temporary and the glory is going to be forever. And, and in, in the, the, the exact place of the trial and the suffering and the pain, we can experience the love of God being poured into our heart by the Holy Spirit as we take this truth and grasp it by faith. It, it won't work for you if you, just, if you just read this and hear this and then turn and get on with doing life the way you've always done life. Or, or you just go back to your feelings and back to your thoughts, uh, back to your interpretations of things. You won't get any benefit. You won't, you'll get no joy. But if, if you take Romans 5 and say, oh God, let, those be, let, let these truths be the glasses that I look through and apply this to your life, you're going you're gonna to experience there the wonderful love of God. Hilaire Below said, time after time, mankind is driven against the rocks of the horrid reality of a fallen creation. And that's absolutely true. But by faith, we stand on the rock of the reality of God's love and grace. And we stand there in conviction that this is temporary and it's going to give way one day to everything being made new. We're going to sing a song after the service here. It's a song your pastor, Jonathan Cruz, has written. And it captures these truths very well. Let me just read two verses. My God has called me to embrace the truth that He is for me. It matters not the path I face or if there's pain before me. All things will be worked out for me. My welfare is His pleasure. So I must cherish what He says. I am His precious treasure. My God has welcomed me to rest within His love forever. No tragedy nor troubling test could me from God's love sever. My every care, I place them there within his hands completely. For as a father to a child, he's always loved me sweetly. And that's the truth. May God grant it to our hearts. Let's pray. Father, you know how prone we are to unbelief and to fear and anxiety when we go through trial. And yet, oh God, I thank you that In the gospel, we have such rich, boundless reasons for joy and hope. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us then to interpret our lives according to your truth and your goodness, all in Jesus Christ. That we would stand, Lord, in this grace, this beautiful grace of God, and we would would rejoice in the peace, O God, that we have with you. And we would have deep confidence of the glory of God belonging to us, now in part, one day in full. And that will change how we think and how we feel and how we live as we joyfully endure and joyfully hope. Oh God, thank you for your grace to us in Jesus. Bless this truth now to our heart in Jesus' name. Amen.